are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Runaway Train, which came out in 1985 and was directed by Andrei Konchalovsky. It stars John Voight, Eric Roberts, Rebecca De Mornay, John P. Ryan, Kyle T. Hefner, T.K. Carter, and Kenneth McMillan. The genre would be action-adventure. I'm going. You coming? Oh, smile, man. We're free. We make a hell of a team, don't we, man? I don't know nothing from nothing. Being around me is really stupid. I'm in war with the world, everybody in it. I don't know what happened, but there's no engineer on this train. There's nobody on this train but us. The brake shoes have burned off. The overspeed control must have gotten screwed up, Amy. Engineers do not just quote. You want to be a tough guy? You want to be a legend? Go back! Let's have some fun. <laughs> you want to shoot me? Shoot me! Shoot the kid! Come on, you don't get us I tell you, man. You die, sucker. At stake is their spirit, their freedom, and their lives. John Voigt, Eric Roberts, Rebecca De Mornay, Runaway Train. A film by Andre Konchalovsky. Anyone remember Canon Films? Yeah, Golan and Globus were Israel's answer to Simpson and Bruckheimer only they were actually running their own independent studio during the 70s and 80s. They were steady purveyors of low-budget schlock, including the Death Wish, Kickboxer, and American Ninja franchises, along with a few of my personal favorite 80s B-gems, like Breakin', Life Force, and <sighs> the Delta Force. McCoy, what are you doing up there? Drop that thing and get down here quick. What do you want me to do? Jump? I don't care what you do, make it fast. Well, they were the epitome of coked-out 80s excess, and eventually they spent themselves into oblivion trying to compete with the bigger studios, with more expensive star vehicles, like Over the Top. What I do is I, I just try to take my hat, and I turn it around, and it's like a switch that goes on. Yeah, I think Sly's cut-off shirt budget apparently broke them. But not before Cannon released this happy accident back in 1985. To much acclaim, and even a surprising number of Oscar nominations. Those Oscar nominations were for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Film Editing. And in my opinion, they're each well-deserved. The initial inspiration for this story was Akira Kurosawa. This was actually adapted from an unproduced screenplay by the legendary filmmaker, and it has a beautifully simple and straightforward story. Two convicts, played by Voight and Roberts, escape from an isolated Alaskan prison. They hop on a train, and then they discover that they're alone, well, sorta, on that train, as the conductor had a heart attack just as it was leaving, and the brakes are busted as the train gains speed as it hurtles faster and faster into the Alaskan winter without any way to stop it or even slow it down. You sure nobody else is on board? How the hell do I know? It's already going about nine miles and it's increasing speed. Nine miles already? That's right. What the hell are we going to do? You better stop Hey, hey, look, be quiet. Will you calm down? Okay, okay. Now, look, what I want you to do, I want you to line around to the main line on track one. Okay. You got it? Right. I'll take things over from there. Right, Frank.
and hot on their trail, determined to catch them, is Rankin, the obsessed prison warden who has developed a very personal rivalry with Voight's Manny, who is a career criminal and became a sort of hero to his fellow convicts before escaping. In the years leading up to this, Manny successfully filed a lawsuit against the prison for abuse, and this has made Rankin quite bitter. Rankin is played by the late John P. Ryan, and he's a character very much like Javert from Les Miserables, written and performed in broad strokes. Yeah, I didn't think you wanted to back up that loud conversation. Wipe that piss off your face, and I want to hear any more crap out of you. If I don't get my convicts back, the prison will be out of control. You know what a riot in a maximum security prison looks like? Your brains are too small to imagine it. Now, where's the train? Truck run. I'm going to kick your teeth and you're playing with me. You tell me real straight, got it? You tell me how to find that train with a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. As are our two main protagonists. Voight plays Manny as a crusty, world-weary lifer with the scars on his face to prove it. His face is also always halfway between scowl and devilish smile throughout. It's a pretty ballsy performance, and it might even be the last truly great performance given by Voight before he would begin playing mostly over-the-top villains in the 90s, while occasionally going nuanced with Michael Mann. He also has great chemistry with Eric Roberts. He's Buck, and Buck, as played by Roberts, is kind of a wild-eyed, R-rated version of Farz Gump, who never shuts up. And though I can see how many might find this character grating, it works well for this movie because of the stark contrast with Voight. Their scenes together are filled with exchanges and monologues, which on paper should not work. But they do because both actors are just going for it. Hey, Manny, I want you to know I'm proud to be her company partner. Look, kid, I appreciate what you've done, but you ain't no kind of partner to me. Don't be clowning yourself. I don't like it. Look at them tattoos. They look really nice in a swimming pool in Acapulco. What I do deserve all this shit you're slinging at me, man. You don't know nothing from nothing. Being around me is really stupid. I'm at war with the world, everybody in it. And you're going to get hurt. And let's not forget Rebecca De Mornay. And her performance is probably subtler than the others, but she still brings some power herself. We add her to the mix about halfway through the film as a railroad employee who got stuck on the train, and suddenly you have three folks fighting the elements, man against nature, to stop this train in a series of hair-raising sequences which are impressively shot from all angles to the point where the train itself starts to take on a character all its own. With incredible stunt work and stunning cinematography, this film is a technical marvel, though much credit also has to go to editor Henry Richardson. He certainly earns his Oscar nomination as he pieces everything together into a very tight and propulsive 110 minutes, which delivers both thrilling action and loads of human moments. Each of our leads eventually has their moment to just break down emotionally, even though it never stops the movie in its tracks. Pun intended. And none of that would matter nearly as much if this movie did not end the way that it did. The last 10 minutes of this really do rank among the best of the decade, and for good reason. All of the pieces come together, including a stirring score from Trevor Jones, to result in moments which contain genuine poetry behind them. And the film ends with a last shot that is truly unforgettable. This brings me to the categories. The first category, of course, would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. 
because music is essential to film. South African slash British composer Trevor Jones did the score for this film. He's been at this since the 1980s, often composing memorable moody music for movies like Excalibur and Angel Heart. Eclectic themes which use synthesizers, saxophones, and various other instruments, which can often be hard to define. And that's certainly the case here, as his music for Runaway Train sometimes sounds very contemporary, and at other points, very orchestral. The most memorable piece from his score plays over the entire tense conclusion of this movie, all leading to that last memorable shot of a figure standing atop the titular train as it barrels into a snowy oblivion. For this last part of the score, he actually updates a famous movement from the late great composer Antonio Vivaldi, known as Gloria in D major. And there are added choral voices to make it even more effective. This whole composition sounds very haunting, and it provides a truly beautiful note to end this film on. next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, rewatching this or any of his stronger performances from the first half of the 1980s always begs the question, what happened to the career of Eric Roberts? Now, I know for many who have seen him in this movie, they would just kind of shrug their shoulders because despite Roberts receiving an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for this role, well, let's just say that his performance is not for everyone. He's making some interesting choices <laughs> oh man shoes i need shoes yeah this performance is not for everybody and it's certainly not subtle but in the context of this movie and his chemistry with john voight it just works for me anyways through the first half of the 1980s roberts had garnered some acclaim as an up-and-coming young actor with just a very unique vibe in movies like the pope of greenwich village star 80 and culminating with his oscar recognition for this role A few years later, he also had one minor hit in 1989 with the martial arts drama Best of the Best, which admittedly is a guilty pleasure of mine. And then, well, apparently he or his agent just said yes to everything. And I mean everything. This dude has more than 700. You heard that right. 700 movie and TV credits on his IMDb which has to be some kind of record. He occasionally actually has a decent role in a quality movie like The Dark Knight. He was very good in that. Inherent Vice or The Cable Guy, or even a supporting role in a popular TV show like Law & Order or Justified or Frasier. But the rest of his IMDb? Wow. There are just some crazy credits here. Sharktopia, Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, Snow White, A Deadly Summer, (laughs) Stalked by My Doctor, A Sleepwalker's Nightmare. That's a real title. (laughs) And, ugh, The Human Centipede 3, the final sequence. Yeah, once you go Human Centipede, there's no going back. And by the way, you will never hear me review one of those movies as I just refuse to watch them. Sorry. I mean, I'll say this. The dude has been working on a regular basis and actually perusing through his IMDb was quite entertaining. But if you rewind all the way back to 1985, this guy was a promising young talent who was competing with the likes of Sean Penn, Charlie Sheen, and Mickey Rourke for prime parts. There was always talent there. 
And I really liked him in Greenwich Village. That's to keep him humble. When you don't let them say goodnight to nobody, they walk out looking at the fucking floor. He just brought an interesting spin to those performances. I guess it's just kind of a shame that he went in a different direction. The next category would be the trailer moment, the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Roughly 40 minutes into the movie, we see John Voight deliver a monologue, which I am 100% confident garnered him an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. We see our two protagonists hanging inside one of the rear cars. Young Buck starts going on about when they get free, he's got an idea for a lucrative bank job that he can get in on, and how he's going to make a big score, and then travel around the country and party. (laughs) And Manny is staring at him annoyed, and then just stops him short by launching into an angry monologue, which is just kind of off the wall, but very effective. Now, whether you are on board with this monologue or not, Voight is just selling it, waving his arms forward, making it all feel very personal. It's pure stage acting, but for me personally, it's one of my all-time favorite monologues. You're going to get a job. That's what you're going to do. You're going to get a little job, some job a convict can get, like scraping off trays in the cafeteria or cleaning out toilets. And you're going to hold on to that job like gold, because it is gold. Let me tell you, Jack, that is gold. You're listening to me. And when that man walks in at the end of the day and he comes to see how you've done, You ain't going to look in his eyes. You're going to look at the floor because you don't want to see that fear in his eyes when you jump up and grab his face and slam him to the floor and make him scream and cry for his life. So you look right at the floor, Jack. Pay attention to what I'm saying, motherfucker. And then he's going to look around the room, see how you're done. He's going to say, oh, you missed a little spot over there. Jeez, you didn't get this one here. What about this little bitty spot? And you're going to suck all that pain inside you. And you're going to clean that spot. And you're going to clean that spot until you get that shiny clean. And on Friday, you pick up your paycheck. And if you could do that, if you could do that, you could be president of Chase Manhattan. Corporations. If you could do that. This brings me to the final category. The MVP. The person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, despite not receiving an Oscar nomination himself, the man most responsible for the breakout success of this film remains Andrei Konchalovsky, a Russian journeyman director of theater, film, and TV for several decades. I mean, seriously, this guy has been directing stuff since 1965. He directed an, an award-winning Russian docudrama, which came out just last year, called Dear Comrades. He has a very diverse IMDb page, to say the least. Absolutely nothing in his filmography like this. But seeing as he took on this project after reading Kurosawa's original unproduced screenplay, well, he was clearly inspired by one of the best. And apparently because he was directing this film, backed by the famously or infamously thrifty Golan Globus, he was very constrained by the tight $9 million budget, which was agreed upon up front. He managed to cut costs by using three cameras at a time while shooting the real-life trains during the shoot, providing a lot of coverage so he could piece together the best combination of shots in post-production, and also by using several miniatures with the effect being pretty seamless. I mean, this film just looks legit for its entire runtime. All around, this was just a uniquely ambitious production, considering the company producing it and when it came out. But for pulling it off so memorably, Andrei Konchalovsky is the MVP. Do you think cinema still holds that magic for you? Absolutely. It's not cinema what is magic. It's the ability of a person in the screening room 
participate in joining author in his imagination. My rating for Runaway Train would be five stars out of five. (laughs) Runaway Train remains one of the great action films of its era, or any era. But what makes it special is just how much higher it aims than most other films from the action genre, and how it actually reaches those heights. If you're looking to watch Runaway Train, it's currently streaming on Tubi and Pluto TV. And that ends another unstoppable review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.